0: Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save.
2: Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next, we meet here in the x from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember, x Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
3: And the introduction was correct. I am indeed Kevin Randall, and I am indeed the host of A Different Perspective. This is a uh, special report with Terry Lovelace, who will join us in just a moment. I just wanted to make a couple of statements here. First, the bad news. This will probably be the last special report. I had uh, started these uh, a number of months ago when uh, the mood moved me to do a program about some aspect of the UFO community. For example, Christopher Montgomery had said some things about me that were untrue, so I wanted to interview him on the radio and get his perspective on these sorts of things and maybe clear up some of the problems. And then other things came up that were interesting. We had uh, Keith uh, Blaskett on the show talking about Treasure Quest because I was interested in his perspective on the reality of that program. But in the last uh, month, and now moving into May uh, later on, I've noticed we're doing these things practically every week again. So it's no longer a special report. So the good news is, I think of this Next show next week with uh, my friend John Greenwald as being the first show of the second season. So we will be back, of course, next week with John Greenwald. And following that, we'll have uh, I have other guests lined up probably until the end of May. So we're, we're good to go for quite a bit of these. And now we move on today's program with Terry Loveless, who is a native of St. Louis, Missouri, but I won't hold that against him. After high school, he served from 1973 to 1979 in the U.S. Air Force as a medic, EMT. He spent his enlistment assigned to Whiteman Air Force Base Hospital Emergency Room as a first responder. Whiteman Air Force Base at one point was the home of the 509th Bomb Group, which had been the unit in Roswell back in 1947, as a bit of a digression, I guess. I don't know. He completed a bachelor's degree in psychology cum laude at Park University and a law degree at Western Michigan. So he is a lawyer, people. So be careful uh, what you say to him. He was admitted to the bar and practiced law in Michigan, Vermont, and the U.S. territory of American Samoa. In 1979, while wilderness camping in an Arkansas State Park, he and a friend were abducted and subjected to painful medical procedures. What followed was a lifetime of nightmares. For fear of losing his job and damage to his standing in the legal community, he never disclosed the encounter until 19, 1912, till 2012, when a routine x-ray of his leg found an anomalous object in his knee. In 2018, <clears throat> He disclosed his experience in a book, Incident at Devil's Den, which is available on Amazon as an ebook, audiobooks, and as a paper book. He'll be a speaker at the Contact in the Desert, May thirty-first through June third, at Indian Wells, Palm Springs. Welcome to a different perspective.
4: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here.
3: I, uh, of course, have your book and have been looking through it. Uh, last week we had on uh, Dr. Michael. Uh, Michael, Michael, Michael Master. I couldn't remember his last name for some reason. Michael Master. And yes. I, I bring this up simply because I asked him a question that kind of evolved out of your book, and I'll ask you the question as well. But he I asked him if there had been any negative feedback, any negative connotations to his UFO experiences. His father had seen something when he was a kid, and apparently they talked about it all the time, and there were no sort of negative connotations involved in it. But I noticed in your book, uh, it seemed that everybody reacted very poorly to your
4: UFO experiences. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, sure. My first UFO experience, I was age eight. Uh, 1963, I was in my backyard in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, It's an urban area, a lot of cars, a lot of kids, a lot of activity going on. I'm in my backyard. I play with a bow and arrow, and I'm loading an arrow into the notch of my bow, and looking down and I see a, a shadow, a perp- perfect, perfect, uh, circular shadow move across my feet. And I look up and directly over my head, uh, I shouldn't say directly over my head. Thank God, probably about maybe, maybe 30 feet, maybe 40 feet. There's a perfect, perfectly round silver disc. Um, and I'm just awestruck and I, I am looking at this thing and it's it wobbling a little bit in the breeze. And, uh, for some reason, Kevin, and I don't remember doing it, I, I laid down in the grass to look up at it, thinking I could get a better view of it by taking that posture for some reason. And I watched this thing just kind of trying to drink in everything my eyes could take in. Uh, just very excited, uh, not an ounce of fear. Uh, and the thing shot off like a, from zero to 500 miles an hour to just a, a hole in the sky. And I yelled, Mom! And, of course, my mom thinks I took my bow and arrow and shot a neighbor in the head or something. She comes running. And I'm like, Mom, did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? And she's like, you know, stop stop yelling. You know, the neighbor's, neighbor's going to think there's something wrong with you. And she drags me in the house. And I can tell you, as a child at age eight in the 19, 1960s, children were discounted. I mean, they were... Um, you know, I, I was flat told, I don't know what you saw, but it was not a flying saucer. And I learned pretty quickly there were negative connotations to telling what, anyone.
3: Was her reaction, though, maybe fear of that unknown as opposed to something else? Uh, the, the idea of flying saucer scared her?
4: I really think that in that time and in that day and age, uh, there was a, a, um, a sense of uniformity. You know, there was. Uh, uh, everyone played their roles in the 1960s. And, uh, I don't know how to say it, but it's, it's, it was something out of the norm. You know, it, it, uh, uh, even though on television, there was, uh, there were, there were space, uh, uh, shows and shows about UFOs and about aliens. Um, but it was a break in conformity. And, uh, I think that was the issue.
3: Well, I I was thinking about that as, as you were talking here. And, uh, I was a little bit older in the 1960s, but, um, and we lived in Aurora, Colorado, which is not all that far from Missouri, uh, just across Kansas, and who cares about Kansas? <laughs> the, um, everybody in the neighborhood knew of my interest in UFOs, and I think my mother sort of sparked this, that interest back then, and there didn't seem to be anything wrong with looking at UFOs or talking about UFOs. So you know, I find it
4: interesting that,
3: that, that your experience is so uh, opposite of that
4: it was 180 degrees opposite of that. Uh, and that may have been my, you know, my parents were both, uh, um, they were foreign people from, from rural Arkansas. Neither of my parents completed high school. Um, and, and I, I think that, um, you know, I think it was just a different mindset. Um, I think, uh, different time, different place, you know, uh, I don't know, but I I ran into a lot of negativity. I can tell you this: in March of 2018, when I published this book on uh, Amazon, uh, that my friends in the legal community, 80% of them were very very supportive, but another 20% were like, "Have you lost your mind? What is wrong with you?" Uh, so, uh, you know, that was interesting, but uh, you know, no regrets at all about uh, about uh, making it public. I, I don't think it would have been as well received even five years ago as it has been today.
3: Yeah, yeah I, find, I find that really hard to accept, and here's why. You know, I, uh, When I graduated from college, I was commissioned into the Air Force and went to uh, Richard's Gebauer Air Force Base in Kansas City. We called it Dickie Goober, for those of you who are familiar with it. And uh, it had come out that I had been interested in UFOs. I'd been writing articles about UFOs in, in national magazines. And I, because I became an intelligence officer, I required a top secret clearance and none of that ever adversely affected uh, my military career. So I'm just, you know, kind of flabbergasted at the response
4: that you sort of garnered. Well, and I think you were probably an officer where I was an enlisted guy. Uh, and I think that makes a difference. Um, but I don't know. I, You know, my story uh, wasn't embraced. uh and maybe it would have been, I don't know. But for fear of damage to my legal career, I, I didn't wanna come out with it, not until I had retired. Uh,
3: well, I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm just thinking that, that the responses that I held, and, and, and when I got to Richard Gebauer, I was introduced to people, and they took me out to lunch, and one of the guys was talking about UFOs and knew my interest, and he said, I read this article about blah, 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 and I said, well, that's interesting. I wrote it, <laughs> and, and, it. and he, he came up with another article and said, yeah, that was mine too, and, and it was and, – and then when I moved into the Army and uh, that sort of thing – there was never any negative connotation and I required top secret clearances and they always came through. They didn't say, well, this guy can't be trusted because he believes in flying saucers. So, but I can understand as an attorney, that might not be the best course of action to take.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people rely on you, you know, they trust you with their property. They trust you with, in some cases, their lives. So, uh, you know, they're looking for stability. They're looking for somebody who's rock solid and stable. um, you know, that, uh, um, I don't know. I, I just don't think the two would have mixed. The legal community. I think there are some, uh, and, and you may disagree, but I think there are some professions, law enforcement, academia, uh, uh, um, you know, maybe commercial airline pilots, and you may disagree, uh, air traffic controllers, uh, where there is a stigma against uh, being vocal about the subject.
3: Well, let's me let me, let's take a break and we'll get back to this in just a minute. We've got a go away for a a moment or two here I'm with Terry Loveless his book is Incident at Devil's Den which tells about his abduction experiences I'll have more information uh, up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and if you get a chance take a look at xzbn.net and you can find a whole list of uh, programming for uh, the paranormal and the unusual that might interest you we will be back right after this so stick around
5: Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com com.
3: As promised just minutes ago, I am back with Terry Loveless. His book is... Incident Devil's Den, we were talking about, I guess, the dichotomy of experiences between the reaction of people who know us and our UFO interest. Uh, And you were talking about people who, um, in professions, who might not want to mention their UFO settings because it would adversely affect their careers. And and I can point to examples where that's true. Uh, Airline pilots sometimes find themselves in a great deal of trouble reporting UFOs and that sort of thing. So there is that dichotomy going there, so I can understand that. I was just a little surprised that I guess the the reaction is as a child when you were a child was as negative as it was.
4: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, my mother's words stick in my head. And actually, it was my father's words were you can't go around the neighborhood telling people you saw a UFO. They'll think there's something wrong with you. They'll think there's something wrong with us. And, you know. But you know, my neighbor, my 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 parents, my family always concerned about what the neighbors were thinking. So, you know, I think that that had a lot to do with it.
3: yeah, I, I can understand that. Now that wasn't, um, as as a child, that wasn't your only only problems. You were, uh, I guess, had had nightmares and things of that nature.
4: I had a very b- bizarre uh, experience with, and this is this is hard, hard to believe, but it's I had uh, four little, They looked like circus monkeys that would appear in my room and ask me to go with them. And one of the nightmares I've had over the years was this this monkey, the one closest to my head, would always hold out a paw. And they spoke, and I heard their voice clear in my head. I mean, clear as a bell, audibly inside my head, but their their, uh, mouths never moved. They had these masks. And this is hard to explain in a couple of seconds, but this in in real life this monkey held out a monkey's paw for me to hold on to. And in this these nightmares that have plagued me, uh, the monkey holds out a paw, but in the nightmare it's not a paw, it's these four long ugly fingers. And for some reason that just that just wigs me out. And uh, yeah, I had a series of these dreams and well, did-
3: do you, do you think those related to uh, your UFO experience?
4: They were, but the other way around. I had the, uh, the, um, the monkey dreams, and then after the UFO experience, those stopped. I never had another visit from a monkey after this UFO experience.
3: You mean the, the abduction at um, Devil's Den?
4: Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, as, as I, meant, I
3: meant your, I meant your sighting, your sighting, and and did that kind of relate to the sighting you had as an eight year old?
4: Um, I'm not sure. If I thought it, did, did the 1977.
3: What? No, you you said that as an eight year old boy, you'd you'd seen this craft over you, and then the 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 dreams, the monkey dreams started, and I just wondered if those dreams might have been related to that sighting as as an eight year old.
4: Yes, I think so. Absolutely. Um, Were they,
3: uh, Well, I guess the the problem, are you familiar with hypnagogic and hypnopopic uh, hallucination? I am. I'm familiar with with both. Yes. Okay. And for the the listeners, these are um, hallucinations that are um, connected to sleep paralysis, a, a state of either falling asleep or waking up. You find yourself in a state of paralysis, unable to move. And about 80% of the time, there's a feeling of an entity of some kind in the room. They're usually short-lived. And once you can move something, uh, it breaks the spell and everything is back to normal.
4: And I just wondered if this could be a manifestation of something like that. Well, you know, that would make sense. Because as a child, as soon as the click of the hall light went on, the monkeys would vanish in a twirl of shadows. So in that regard, that's very possible. You know, and I go out of my way in my book to try to be as objective as possible. You know, these are my experiences. This is what happened to me. Um, but I can't really draw any conclusions and say, you know, these these were monkeys or these were, these, this was just my experience. Now, you know, my 1977 event, that was a very different story.
0: Um,
4: well, let's jump to that then. Um, you know, it's a possible
3: that, that the, the monkey dreams were some kind of a hypnopopic or hypnagogic hallucination? Maybe not. We don't know. Let's move to the 1977 event. But
4: get us get us involved in that. Sure, sure. Uh, I'd worked with a uh, my best friend in the world. Uh, we worked night shift at the emergency room, drove an ambulance, and uh, we worked 11... Uh, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. that night shift because I was taking evening classes at the college and he liked to watch the night sky. He was an amateur astronomer, so the night shift just kind of fit, and we became the best of friends. This came, this was this was while you were still in the air force. This yes, on active duty in 1977, okay. two years left in my enlistment, and my buddy comes up to me. I call him Tobias or Toby in the book. Toby comes up to me and says, "Hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping," and I'm like. Toby, are you nuts, man? Because neither one of us, I, I said, we're city kids, Toby. I grew up in St. Louis City. He came from Flint, Michigan. We'd never been camping in our lives.
3: And well, let me, let me break in here just to make a comment, because as an old Army guy, yeah. uh, we did camping, and it's never been exciting for me. I do not want to go camping if I can avoid it at all possible. My idea of roughing it is staying in a Ramada Inn without a remote control for the TV and no premium channels, no HBO. That's my idea of roughing it. Okay, so you're—he decides you guys should go camping, and uh, you're in Arkansas.
4: Yes, yes, and, we did, uh, and we didn't. <clears throat> we didn't want to spend the night in the campground because. He needed a place without light pollution, and I wanted—I was a photographer, uh, amateur photographer—and I had some new telephoto lenses I wanted to try out. We wanted to be a wilderness; we wanted to make this a wilderness adventure. So we trespassed, and we went deep into the heart of um, of uh, Devil's Den Park, uh, past you know, past the chains, in an area where we weren't supposed to be. But we found a beautiful spot of high ground and uh, made camp. On top of this spot of high ground, and there were a series of missteps. I won't go into, um, but to to jump to the heart of the thing, we're, we're sitting around the campfire, uh, and I remember thinking, you know, this must be the allure. This must be what people like about camping, because up to that point, it was it was, you know, it was fairly pleasant. And that's when my, my uh, buddy turns his head to the left and he says, "Hey, man, were those were those there before?" And he's looking at something, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he points out to me, and there were three bright stars. Kevin, they were about as bright as the North Star, each one. They were on the western horizon. They were too far above the horizon to have been, like, from a road or a parking lot. And they were uh, stationary, and that triangular configuration didn't didn't fit any airplane aircraft Headlights that we could think of. So we're looking at this thing. Trying to figure out what it could be. um, And it moved. And they moved in unison. And at first they turned. Like they were on an axis. And they rotated about three quarters of a turn. And we are excited. We are going crazy. And uh, while we're talking about this. Then it starts to climb higher into the sky. And I should mention that. Um, immediately, uh, just minutes before he saw these stars, I noticed a change in the, uh, the vibe of the campground. I don't know how to describe this other than it was just a sensory change. It was, um, and and I know it sounds cliche. I swear it's true. You know, the crickets and the tree frogs and all that stuff were gone, uh, even the breeze we'd enjoyed earlier was gone. It was dead still, and that unnerved me. And then, then we saw these lights, and then we're excited. And as they climb higher into the sky, you know, we're, we're you know, we're excited for a while. And then we this goes on over the span of about an hour. And as it climbs into the sky, the three points of light expand, and they always remain equidistant to one another. Um, and, it, and it's getting bigger, uh, and it's climbing into the night sky. And I, I asked my buddy Toby, who's the astronomer. I'm saying, "Like, Toby, are these things, are these things in our atmosphere? Are they like at uh, you know cruising altitude, or are they, or are we seeing something outside our solar system? What are we looking at?" And he's like, "I have no idea." Um, and about this time, I had the sensation of calm wash over me. And there really was a lull in our conversation we We hardly spoke um there was hardly a dozen words spoke between us, and we just watched this thing and we watched it and it got bigger and i, I again is it, it it was a beautiful night. there were just a billion stars out, and uh it was moving, and it would occasionally turn into like somersaults and but it was moving with purpose. It wasn't just tumbling through the air. And Sure enough, the area inside the three stars was jet black, much darker than the surrounding blue sky of the night. So we knew we were looking at a solid object. And the the closer it got, the more sedated I felt. Um, And not only sedated, but almost disinterested to a point. Inappropriately disinterested. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand it to this day. Uh, but instead of being, uh, we we were just inappropriately disinterested. I'll leave it late at that. Uh, and it moved across the meadow. We were we were sitting on top of this big open field uh, on high ground. And let me let me interrupt
3: here because I'm going to have to take a break. Sure. <laughs> and we'll get to the object actually getting to you in the next segment here, and what happens when it gets close enough to interact with you Um, I'm joined with by terry loveless the book is devil incident at devil's den i don't know why i just want to say devil's den Uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com which talks about lots of ufo related things and um, mysteries of lost gold and buried treasures as well for some bizarre reason i don't know how i got into that (laughs) Uh, we are on the x zone broadcast network and we will be back right after this so stick around
2: Get both the book and the DVD, a forty dollar value for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. Rob McConnell here presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Genics, author of a fascinating book, Amen. After the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com.
6: You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels,
3: I just want to listen to the bumper music rather than get back into the program. But I know people want to listen to my dose of tones. So I'm back. I am joined by Terry Loveless. We were talking about his experiences, uh, the incident at devil's den. He's got the UFO sighted. It's uh, got three lights. There's a black shape behind the lights. It's coming toward him. He's relaxed. Let's get into the real meat of this. The, the object obviously approaches close enough.
4: You guys are, you guys interact with it
3: in some fashion, go. We do.
4: There's a shadow. It gets close enough that we see a dark shadow move across that meadow, and then this thing stopped. Uh, and I might mention that there, there were those three points of light that were so bright. Uh, once it hit its it, it ceiling, it dimmed those lights down. Uh, so it, when, it, when it descended, it was about three thousand. I'm guessing three thousand feet over our head, and it was enormous. Um, and we couldn't see anything but the bottom of it, of course. And the um, the lights on the three points were dim at this point, and we are just we're stunned. We're stunned, yeah. but we're also um, I I, I want to say sedated. Uh, we weren't we weren't flipped out. I mean, uh, it, it was it was just an Odd experience. And while we're sitting there, my friend Toby picks up a flashlight and says, I'm going to try to signal it. And, you know, I was too far away to snatch it out of his hand. And he held it above his head. I
3: was going to say, haven't you guys ever seen a horror movie? The last thing you want to do is signal the thing that's coming at you.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, but he does. And as soon as he does, a light from the center of this thing shoots down, and it's a visible beam of light, and it's a white light. It's like it's like a, like a searchlight cutting through the thick fog, where it's a visible beam. That's what this was like, uh, and it was only about six inches in diameter, and it landed square in the center of our campfire for some reason, and we could follow it because it was a visible stream of light we could follow it. It just became a white line because as it got further up into sky. Uh, but we could see that it went to the center of this triangle that was over our heads. And we're both looking at that. And I don't think we said a word and it was on there for maybe a minute, maybe two. And then it, it, it's gone. It just like, like someone flips a switch and it's off. And then in its stead, there comes this, uh, a laser, what I call a laser. In 1977, lasers were a brand new concept. Uh, and this this purplish red light uh, can, comes from the same se- center of the, uh, underneath of the ship. Uh, at least we assume that's where it's from. It's so small, uh, but, it, but it's very bright. It's visible in the night sky. And it would hit a spot in the campsite and it turn off and then turn back on in another area and then flip off, and then turn back on in another, uh, and then do that repetitiously over and over and over again quickly. So it gave the illusion that this this light was dancing all around the the campsite. And I remember thinking the thing is scanning us, and it hit me in the head and the chest, and I know it hit my buddy, and I didn't feel any sensation whatsoever. And it struck my car, struck the tent. It just kind of danced around the campsite. And this lasted for a couple of minutes, maybe. Uh, and then it, it turns off. And we're sitting there just stunned. Uh, and just not not, in, not with it. And my, my friend says, show's over. And we picked up our, our yellow inflatable air mattresses. And we went inside our tent threw them down, and I didn't bother to take off my boots or anything. I fell on top of my mattress, and I was out. And the next thing that I remember was uh, lights, light green, blue, yellow, brilliant lights. I mean, like light up a ballpark kind of lights. And uh, coming through the, the canvas of the tent, and I wake up. But I, I, I'm not with it. I'm not. I'm not myself. I'm out. Of, I'm out of it. And I, I remember thinking, but well, what, what? Where am I? What is this? My first thought was these must be overhead lights from a park ranger's truck or something. And there's a hum. There's a mechanical noise, and I'm thinking a generator, maybe a generator in the back of a park ranger's truck. I don't know. And uh, and then one of these flashes of lights, I can see my buddy Toby is on his hands and knees. It's a tiny tent. And he's peeled back his flap, and he's looking out. And uh, in one of these flashes of light, I could see um, uh, Toby's African-American. And there were these tracks of tears. And when the light would hit, they were very visible on his face. And and that, that wigged me out. I thought, my God, what could make this guy move this guy to tears? And that scared me. And I'm like, Toby, what is it, man? What's, what, what's out there? And he's like, shh, they're still out there. They're still out there. And he's trying to get me to be quiet. And he's hyperventilating. And I'm like, Toby, you got to slow your breathing down, man. Um, I get to my knees. I realize I'm in a lot of pain. My, every bone in my body aches. I get to my knees. I flip back this, my portion of the tent a couple inches, and I look out. And in this meadow... There are maybe a dozen, maybe fifteen of these little kids, what I took to be little kids, and they're paired up in twos and threes, and they're milling around the uh, the uh, uh, this meadow. And we had heard before I got to my knees, I'd heard rustling of leaves and things outside the camp the campsite. So they were they were out there, and I'm like Toby, what what's the deal, man? What are these little kids doing out there? And uh, I'm still in a fog. And Toby says to me, he says, man, those ain't no little kids, Terry. They took us. Don't you remember? And then I did. And I didn't have this, you know, this linear memory of what happened. What so you, so
3: you, you woke up and the abduction had taken place. Correct. And now in today's environment, do you remember what happened during that abduction?
4: Yes, I, I recall bits and pieces of it. I do. And uh, I'll tell you what happened was I had a, uh, a... You're familiar with the Office of Special Investigation. I know. Uh, the OSI is the security police. OSI is to the Air Force what NCIS is to the Navy. And they did an interrogation uh, of me. And the problem that I had was they thought that I took pictures of this thing. You know, I had this... this uh, reputation of being a photographer in the hospital squadron and you know i left my camera at home and wait, you know,
3: wait, let me let me interrupt because you've, you've gone off on a couple of tangents here and i have it's, it's a bit confusing for me and i'm gonna run out of time for the whole show if i'm not careful here yes uh so let's deal with the abduction aspect of it right now do you remember being on the ship
4: or in the craft or whatever i do i do i, I have several memories of being and in the what
3: ship did you, what did you what
4: Here's what I saw. The inside of the ship looked twice or three times as big as the outside looked. I mean, this thing was as big as a five-story office building. Inside, it looked like a a stadium. It was incredible because it didn't match. Also, uh, I was nude and I was standing next to my buddy and we were holding our clothes in our hands and we were frozen. And I couldn't move anything except my eyes. And my eyes are darting all around and I'm trying to take in as much of this thing as I can. And I have some memories. I've drawn some images of it. Um, Luckily, I drew them back in 1978 and kept the drawings. Um, And uh, I saw this guy, there were these little gray guys running around. Um, And I think those things, by the way, I think they're robots. I don't think they're living beings. I think there's some kind of AI and biological blend, but they're running around and there's this taller being that's not great. He's kind of an ashen color, uh, and he has large eyes, but not grotesquely large, like what you see on, on television or in movies. And I'm straining my eyes to the left to see him because he's obviously in charge. And he, I think, just by habit stance, turns toward me, and we locked eyes for a second. And oh, my God. And in that second, this guy was in my head. I mean, he knew me. I mean, he knew who I was. He knew my secrets. He knew my wife. He knew everything about me. And I just got mirrored back from him in his black eyes, uh, just nothing but raw intellect. It was, it was it was frightening, and it's it's the centerpiece of, of a nightmare that I've had for forty years. It's it's it was extremely um, frightening experience. I also recall uh, some images from inside the ship. There was a design. Uh, like a like a uh, like a tree branch, and I, I I'm, t- I'm told it's a fractal pattern. Uh, for those who understand fractal geometry, uh, and I also there were other human beings inside the ship. Now there were about six or seven of these guys that wore tan colored sand colored flight suits. They were definitely human beings, uh, and they had orange circular insignias on their on their shoulders, and where their name tag uh, would be across their chest. And these people ignored us, absolutely would not make eye contact with us. They were young guys in their 20s. And one of them was a female, a young uh, a Latino woman, short, petite, a uh, hair in a ponytail. Uh, and this one guy is, uh, I know that they were crew members of the ship because one guy had a panel on the side of the thing open, and he was doing something inside this panel. So well, let me let me interrupt
3: here because once again, we, we've come up against a break, so we have to go along go sure. ahead with that. Uh, we're talking with Terry Lovelace about his abduction experiences. We finally got him onto the ship here. And we're about to run out of time completely for the show, so we'll have to speed it up. And I also want to explore the idea of the OSI interrogation that took place, because that's interesting when you relate it to some other UFO cases. The book is called Devil's Den. I'm sorry, Incident at Devil's Den. It's on Amazon. It's an ebook. You can get it as an audio book and a paperback. I'll have more information, a little bit more information, at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I probably should mention uh, the books are. Uh, Roswell in the 21st Century, Encountering the Desert, which deals with the Alani Zamora case and case MJ-12, which has been updated for this part of the millennium. We will be back right after this.
5: Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com SIMULTV.com
3: I am here with Terry Lovelace. We're talking about his abduction experiences. I finally got
4: him on the ship. He's looking around. You said there were human crew members... There absolutely were human crew members on that board. There were were six or seven. I want to say seven. uh, Young guys, uh, military crew, you know, haircuts, uh, boots, tan-colored flight suits. uh, But, uh, you know, perhaps they weren't human. I don't know where they should look human to me. Were you examined? Uh, I take it you were examined? I was. I was. That was part of the—we were standing there nude, holding our clothes, and— Again, at one point, Toby's standing next to me. At the next point, he's not. And then I can hear him screaming. And I can hear, just hear him screaming. And that that scares me to death. And I heard a woman screaming. And then I recall being uh, manhandled onto this table. I shouldn't say manhandled because I was uh, just frozen, more or less, onto an exam table that was like porcelain uh, in a white room that was incredibly brightly lit. And Uh, The table was warm, and I remember thinking I was expecting it to be cold because it looked like porcelain. I thought, oh, there's been other bodies on here is why it's so warm. And I recall screaming, and I I, am in a prone position on my back, and I fill in my lungs with air, and I'm screaming as loud as I can. And I can glance down and see my chest rise, and I can't hear anything, but I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And there's this insect-looking thing. Uh, I don't know how high this table is off the ground, so I don't know how tall this thing was. But it turned, and when it did, it looked at me, and it had the triangular-shaped head. It had the insoid, multi-lensed eyes, bulbous. And it spoke to me telepathically, and it said, why are you screaming? You know we don't hurt you. You know we're going to take you back. And it took a green thing, like an appendage, and tapped me on my forehead, and I was out. And that was my last memory aboard the ship.
3: Okay. So you you wake up in the tent. Kobe's Wait. looking out, out the tent. You see the, uh, the creatures, the beings out in the tent. But I want I before we run out of time here, I want to get to how did the OSI
4: learn about this? The, my guess is the park rangers. I don't know this for certain, but it makes sense that the park rangers, because when we left, when this thing when this thing took off, we ran to my car and we we left our tent, his backpack, we left everything. I took nothing but my keys and my wallet. We were so terrified. And I, I drove. We drove back to the base. And it was crazy. There was a change uh, in, in, in our relationship and that we didn't there wasn't hardly a word said between us. And uh, we were ordered actually to have no contact with one another. And some weeks later, I was called to the OSI office, and they sent a car to pick me up. And uh, first time I'd ever been in a police car, you know, no handles. uh, Well, it was just an odd experience. They took me into OSI headquarters. We walked down a hall that was lined with uh, different offices. Uh, They were little interrogation rooms, A, B, C, D. I was in room D. And the driver who took me there opened the door and said, someone will be with you shortly. And I went in and the door shut like a bank vault. I knew it was locked. And there was a table uh, and an old military desk, the gray kind with the gray padded chair and three uh, uh, fiberglass chairs in each corner. And uh, obviously a a mirror, obviously a two way affair. I mean, nobody's gonna be grooming themselves inside this interrogation room. So, and I sat there for like three hours and the two OSI agents, the guys that came and interrogated me when I was in the hospital, came into the office, came into this little interrogation room and said, well, you know, first thing he did was kick me out of the comfortable chair and make me take a, a fiberglass one. he says, you know, you're going to be uh, hypnotized today. And I said, no, I, I didn't know that. And he says, And they're going to give you some medication and it'll help you relax and help you remember things. And I said, yes, sir, I understand, sir, but Why? And he went ballistic and he pulled out of his briefcase, a piece of paper with my signature on it and slammed it on the desk in front of me and said, that's all the why I need son. Now, if you want to withdraw your consent, you can do so. And I'll just see you at your court martial. You don't have, you you, you have that right. You can withdraw your consent. Because they went, they saw me in the hospital when I was in bad shape. And one of the things they did was they laid out forms for me to sign. And one of the forms I signed was for consent to, Ah, uh, hypnotic regression and something about chemical enhancement. And well, we've we've stepped we've missed a step here, which you said they came and visited you in the hospital. When did you end up in the hospital? They did as soon as we got back. As soon as we got back from the campground, I dropped him off at my house. At his house, I went to my house. I had a hundred and three fever. I had a sunburn wasn't blistered, but sunburned all over my body, soles of my feet, every, every inch of my skin. My wife took me to the hospital. We were severely dehydrated. I spent three days and two nights in the hospital. And on my second night there, uh, as my nurse comes in, these two OSI agents, two guys in suits, you know, with the one guy is a major with this flat top haircut, you know, the square jaw kind of guy, uh, obviously a cop. And they came in and they wanted to know, you know, what were you guys doing down there? Do you got a little marijuana plot down there? Is that what you were doing down there? Why would you leave your campground in the middle of the night? Uh, and just started firing all these questions at me. Um, and, I, and, I, and I told them every I told them the truth except about the UFO. I, I did not tell them. And he said, you know, your buddy said you saw some funny lights in the sky. Tell me about that. And I said, well, sorry, I don't remember much about that. And, and I, I, I didn't want to budge from that. But the the, the thing that's important about this is that the nurse and the captain, his sidekick, left the room. The door is shut. It's just me and this OSI major. And he bends down close to my ear, and he drops the hard guy affect on his face. And he says, son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there. And all I want to know is how many pictures you took of it. And where's the film? That's all I want. I just want your film. And he dropped a business card on my desk, on my uh, left side table, and uh, and left. And well, then, if they if they
3: were they were in civilian clothes, suits.
4: They were. They were in blue suits.
3: Did did they introduce themselves? I'm Major So and So. This is Captain So and So.
4: They did, and they showed me ID. That's uh, how I knew the one was a major and one was a captain. The Major did all the talking.
3: Um, they, they tend to do that.
4: They, uh, uh, you know, what's, what's funny is I had a, uh, I, I, in the back of my book, I have a uh, uh, email address. And I said, if you've had an experience, contact me. And I had a woman contact me who, who used all the right jargon. I believe her. She said that her husband was a, was a trained uh, psychologist who worked for the Air Force uh, during this time period. And his job was to use sodium amytol and hypnosis uh, in these types of situations, whatever these types of situations encompass. So um, I think that kind of validates, uh, at least in my mind it validates uh, what I went through. Uh, But while I'm in there, there's a knock at the door and the two AOSI agents open the door and in comes this guy who carries himself like like a priest, not like a military officer, you know what I mean. And he's wearing oak leaves, but no name tag. And he shakes my hand and he's like, Sergeant Lovelace, it's so nice to meet you. I'm Major Brownfield. And I'm like, Okay, sir. And he says, And for today's little exercise, you can call me Brad. That is my name. And I thought, Whoa, this guy was just he was he was creepy, you <laughs> know? And he, he had this little shaving kit that had the sodium amethyl already drawn up in a syringe. And um He sat down with me and he said, uh, you know, have you ever been hypnotized before? And I said, no. And he says, well, it's important that you cooperate and let the medicine do its work and just, you know, listen to the sound of my voice. Well, this guy had a voice like a radio announcer. I mean, just real smooth and easy to listen to. And I I had taken a few psych classes, my undergraduates in in psychology, and I was determined. I, I knew I couldn't resist the drug, but I knew that I couldn't be hypnotized against my will. And what I did was when, when he tried to hypnotize me, he had did that, you know, we're gonna go down the flight of stairs, take that first step, feeling relaxed, feeling comfortable, take that next step, Terry, feeling at ease, feeling 10 times, bad, 10 times more relaxed, and on and on and on until he gets to the bottom. And in my mind's eye, I'm going just the opposite. I'm going up the stairwell. And I'm trying to tense, covertly tense my toes, my buttocks, my, my muscles, Uh, So that I'm not fully relaxed and I uh, crazy as it sounds I'm playing Beatle music in my head um, To try to avoid everything I can to not surrender my entire mind to this guy
3: Well, I hate to interrupt you at this point because it's fascinating, but I'm out of time. Oh You know, uh, we've got you we got the OSI talking to you. We've got a little bit of uh, information about the uh, event it's the incident at Devil's Den. It's at, uh, I guess your website is www.terryloveless.com. Yes. Um, so you can take a look at that uh, and that sort of thing. I'd like to thank you for taking time today talking to us about your experiences and what oh. you went through. I'm fascinated by the OSI connection in it, of course.
4: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here. I, uh, I've read your books. I've seen you on television. It's, it's, uh, I think you're an icon in this uh, UFO culture, honestly. I, and and so, the, check,
3: the check is in the mail.
4: Good, 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 good. good. <laughs> thank
3: you so much for, uh, for visiting with us, and uh, we'll try to get you back sometime.
4: Thank you, my friend. Take care. Okay.
3: You have a good day. Uh, once again this was a different perspective a final special report uh, that frightens people I guess for some reason Uh, the website for me is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and as I say take a look at xzbn.net and you'll find a list of different radio programs and different interests of people dealing with the paranormal and UFOs so you can find other things that may interest you about that I will be back uh, next week with John Greenwald and we'll be talking about his book and the black vault and coming up i'm going to try to get uh, robert charles cornett on the show and he and i partnered on some of the early investigations in the project blue book files and may have been the two first civilians to see it i will be back in 167 hours with another show so uh be looking for us thank you